50 minutes, please. An oxymoron is a figure of speech that combines contradictory words with uh, opposing meanings, says one internet source. Here are some examples of oxymorons. Old news, deafening silence, organized chaos, big baby, original copy. But let me offer you this morning another figure of speech which combines contradictory words with opposing meanings. And let me offer you another oxymoron, and it is this, a proud Christian. Pride for the Christian is an oxymoron. And that is what we see in our passage today as we continue our exposition of the book of Luke. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the third gospel, Luke chapter 9. Our text this morning will be 46 through 50, but we will begin reading in verse 38 to review the context. And the context is this, Jesus has just come down from the majestic Mount of Transfiguration, and He is plunged into the misery and to the grime of sin the next day in the valley with people like us. We pick it up as he's in that valley after the mount in verse 38 of Luke chapter 9. Verse 37, let's pick it up there. On the next day when they had, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, 
and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So reads the word of God. Arguably, one of the foundational underlying sins that gives birth to many other sins in our lives is the sin of pride. Pride is inconsistent with the cross. Pride is just simply contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pride in our lives goes right before a fall. And this is what Luke means to tell disciples of Jesus Christ. That's us. If we are grasping the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are getting it at that moment, getting the gospel, then the gospel is at that moment poking and prodding at our pride. You see, the 12 disciples in Luke chapter 9 are really being trained by Jesus in this chapter to head to Jerusalem at the end of the chapter. They're being trained up, and they're seeing and experiencing many things, being prepared right now to lead the church after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the most important lesson to, that they would learn in the book of Luke is the lesson that we're going to see in our passage today, that they are to look within and they are to see their sin. They are to see their sin, the sin of pride. And so may the Lord help us today, all of us, including me, to see the sin of pride. Brothers and sisters, the evidence that we are not fully grasping the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're not really grasping it at that moment, the evidence of that is fleshed out when pride is manifest towards people. The evidence that we are not fully grasping the gospel is pride towards 
people. Do you want to count for something in this vapor of a life? Do you want to be great? True greatness is found in humility. And that's what Luke is doing here. He's exposing us this morning. He's exposing the pride of the 12 disciples, and he will expose our pride this morning because he's going to unpack two realms of pride in our lives, two realms of pride in our lives. First, in our text, in verses 46 through 48, there's, the, there's pride about ourselves. There's a pride of prominence. Really, this is talking to those inside the church. That's us, inside the church, inside the 12. Look at it starting at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So the 12 disciples... Of course, not in front of Jesus, right? They're having this debate, this argument among the 12 about which one of them will have the greatest role when the kingdom is established. And they're pretty excited because they've had some success in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus, in a training sort of way, sent them out, and they were casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they were preaching the gospel, and, and they had some, some measure of success, and this success seems to have set them up for this moment, to set them up for pride. And just think about what's happening in Luke chapter 9. God has revealed to them as a group, Peter's the spokesman, but as a group, God has revealed to them the identity of Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, that He is one like the Son of Man. And then three of them get a glimpse of the glory of one like a Son of Man, and they get a glimpse of the power and the majesty of the second coming of the kingdom. That's three of them get a glimpse of this glory. And then there's nine of them that don't. And they're stuck in the valley. And they're stuck with overconfidence and prayerlessness and unbelief trying to cast out a demon out of a little boy and being complete failures in their attempts to do that. And so there's irritation that it doesn't work this time. And Jesus isn't there. And they're not up on the mount with the rest of the guys. And there's probably conversations. Like one author said, Peter, the only reason that you're up on the mountain is Jesus has got to keep his eye on you 24-7. And there's all kinds of competition. And there's posturing going on in the lives of the disciples in this context. But I want you to feel, and this is why we do expository preaching, I want you to feel the dissonance, the, the um, contradiction of this passage in light of what we've seen. Jesus, in respect to His humanity, He's the God-man, in respect to His humanity, He has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen the Shekinah glory. He is the Shekinah glory. 
And he will accomplish the exodus of his people. It will be accomplished. He comes down from the majesty and his face is plunged into the misery of sin and death. As he sees a young boy. A young boy. Being mauled by a demon. Foaming at the mouth. And no one can fix him, including his own disciples who are filled with unbelief. And then there's the superficial crowd that just wants another handout. Feed another 5,000. And then there's the, the Jewish leaders who have rejected the Christ out of a heart, a heart of competition and a heart of jealousy. And Jesus sees all of that. And the poor father whose family is being ripped apart and he is helpless and he is full of inability. He doesn't know what to do. He sees all of that sin and misery. And he says, let me get this through your ears. The son, for the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Oh, I know what must come. There is no other way to rescue this mess to undo this kind of sin and death than the Son of Man hanging on the cross of Calvary. And in that context, the disciples prove His point and are debating among themselves who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, pride is at the core of our sinful hearts. Every human being. It is. It is. It's at the very center. Consider the goat debate. The goat means the greatest of all time. Not familiar? It's a sports sort of thing. And of course, one of the big ones is LeBron James, the GOAT, or is Michael Jordan the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Michael Jordan's the GOAT, but that's not the point. It's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is this world is consumed by who's the greatest, who's the best, and it's posturing for that. And pride has entered into the church. Pride has entered into the ministry here of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And pride enters into much of professional ministry and reaps so much destruction in ministry. A man named John Claypool uh, brought up his experience in 1979, uh, a Yale lecture on preaching that he went to in 1979. He brings this up that even while in seminary, there is so much sinful competitiveness and, in, and his experience in ministry was no different. And he writes this about this seminar I'm preaching in 1979. He says, quotes, I can still recall going to state and national conventions in our denomination and coming home feeling drained and unclean because most of the conversation in the hotel room and in the hallways was characterized either by envy of those who are doing well or scarcely concealed delight for those who were doing poorly. For 
if they're doing poorly, for did that not mean that someone was about to fall and thus create a higher opening up the ladder? End quotes. Pride is crushing leadership within the church. Just like it did the disciples. Who's the greatest? It's not just leaders within the church that are struggling with pride. It's members of the church. It's our church. We're, we're here. We're all here. Let me ask you some questions. We're not any, any better than these disciples. How do you feel when you're passed over for a leadership position or a position of responsibility? How do you feel when you're not given the credit you think you deserve for something? How do you feel if someone else is honored instead of you? And I think it's important that we don't just kind of laugh at the disciples here. I mean, because it's over the top. But we look at our own hearts. And so Stuart Scott has helped my thinking to get at the heart of pride. What are some of the manifestations of pride in our life? And let me just name some, and I want you to quiet your hearts and try not, maybe not write all these down. If You can write if you'd want, but just really let these sink in for a moment, these manifestations of pride. Stuart Scott helped me. He said there's, pride manifests as a lack of gratitude being frustrated and irritated and snapping at others in their so-called incompetence. You know, right, all those incompetent people around you? Being highly competitive. Not being able to rejoice with those who rejoice. Having a highly inflated view of your gifts or constantly being focused on your lack of gifts, both manifestations of pride. A lust for perfectionism, talking too much, maybe talking too little. Consumed with other what other people think, devastated by criticism, unteachable and not admitting when you're wrong, voicing opinions when not asked, and minimizing your own sin and shortcomings, and always trying to maximize and posture, maximizing others' sin and shortcomings, jealousy, attention-getting tactics, and on and on we go. These are great, these are underlying manifestations of the great sin of pride. This is really where we're at. Yes, they really did debate who would be the greatest in the kingdom right after Jesus said, I'm going to die. But this is so exciting about this passage. Does the Christ give up on the disciples? Does he give up on us? I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even get frustrated and he just says, let me, let me give you an illustration. Let me patiently teach you. And then they're going to do something else crazy in the next passage that we'll get to today. And he says, here, let me correct that. And then they're going to do in the next passage, next week, they're going to try to call fire down from heaven and incinerate people. 
Uh, that one deserves a rebuke. So he rebukes them, but he doesn't ever give up on them, patiently instructing and teaching. Such is the heart of our humble and gentle Savior who loves us and will not give up on us. So look what he does. Look what he does. He patiently instructs, starting at verse 46. So let's look at it again. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And so Jesus knows they're debating about this. And they tried to hide that debate from the master, which might have, should have been maybe a clue that it was inappropriate. They didn't want him to know. But Jesus patiently, he says, let me, he said, he finds a child and he takes that child and stands that child. Just imagine it. Jesus is standing, there's a child less than 12 years of age, not a baby, less than 12 years of age, so a little child stands him right parallel to him. You can see him with his arm right around the child. And then he begins to teach. Now, in that culture, people did love their cute kids, but especially in that culture, and I think in many ways in our culture as well, children, I think more so we're seeing it, that children were low on the social totem pole. One scholar writes, quotes, in Judaism, children under 12 could not be taught the Torah. So to spend time with them was considered a waste, end quotes. Or one rabbi wrote this, quotes, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble, destroy a man, end quotes. That was the culture. I mean, in Luke chapter 18, the kids are trying to crawl up onto Jesus' lap and the disciples are shooing them off. And Jesus doesn't put up with that attitude in that passage. And neither does he here. In that culture and in all cultures, I think in every culture, it's true because of the heart of man, the great hang out with the great. Movie stars, marry other Movie stars. And when they don't, it makes the news. And if you think about this, what does a little five-year-old child really do for you? I mean, they don't have money. They don't have power. They can't give much information to you. They cannot or don't care to recognize that you are so special. And you have done wonderful things. I mean, if you're going to spend your time posturing, then go to a king and flatter that king. Or go to the government official and flatter that government official. Or go to your boss and flatter your boss. You might get something, a promotion or power or something. But that little child is least. He doesn't have anything to offer you. That little child is lowly and dependent and clueless and helpless. And so Jesus is attacking our pride. 
by taking a young child for sure less than 12 years of age and standing that child next to him side by side. Notice what Jesus says next, an explanation of this in verse 48. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And so Jesus is speaking about this child sitting in there, about receiving this child in my name. And that word for reception is giving welcome to others. It's a word that's used in the New Testament for hospitality. In fact, the word receives is a word that's used in the Bible of conversion to Jesus Christ. This heart attitude of welcoming Jesus Christ and being welcomed by Jesus. And so this is the heart attitude or disposition that is consistent with the gospel. It's a lowly and humble heart that because of Christ, because of following Christ for the sake of Christ, we receive others who are lowly. We welcome the lowly. We welcome the children. And and make no mistake about it, this is how you received the Christ. You became lowly in order to receive the lowly Jesus. You came to the point that you recognize that you were nothing before God, that you were nobody before God, and that you're so needy before God, and you're so amazed. You see yourself, not like the boy that's standing here, you're still stuck in the boy in the last passage. You see yourself as that boy. How much did that boy have to offer? Possessed by a demon, rigid, mute, blind, scarred, drowned half the time, barely with an inch of his life, foaming at the mouth. This boy, did that boy? But that's who we are. We see ourselves in that passage. as needy like that boy, and we are so thankful And so filled with gratitude that the Lord Jesus would look at us and stop for us and see us and say, bring the boy to me. And that's the heart of true Christians. They're nobody, but Jesus cares and he says, and he wants it, and he saves us and he receives us. That's the heart of the gospel. And so if you have received Jesus, then you recognize that he has already received the lowly. And make no mistake about it, this is the way to life. This is the way to God because if you receive Jesus, you are receiving him who sent Jesus. You are receiving the Father. It is the humbled that receive the humble. Now let's get a little more into the principle behind this. I'm thankful for Christ because He gives us the heart of our passage, and I want you to see it at the end of that verse. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. True greatness is found in humility. What does that look like? It looks like being like this child 
insignificant, dependent upon others, and needy. Humility is a posture of heart where God can use you for his own purposes and glory. Stewards, God helps us to see what childlike humility looks like. So again, meditate on these manifestations of humility. How do you know if your heart is being humbled before God and you're like this child? You're being like this child. Well, prayer. You pray. Because there's a desperation and a need of help. And you don't really know how to pray, but your prayers are simply, a lot of times, Lord, help me. I need you. And there's this prayer and this desperation and this posture of humility. And there's just being overwhelmed that God called you by name and rescued you from that pitiful condition of being locked in sin and in death and thankfulness and gratitude for Jesus and thankfulness and gratitude for the blessings that He gives and for other people in your life that leads as you love on them to to gentleness with them and patience with them and, and an accurate view of your gifting and listening to others and encouraging others and being teachable and thankful for criticism, instruction, and correction, and quick to admit that you're wrong and to grant forgiveness. These are the manifestations of humility wrought only by the Holy Spirit of God. C.S. Lewis was right. C.S. Lewis was right. A humble person isn't what you would typically call or might think of humility. Lewis writes this, quotes, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all that you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all, end quotes. And so Jesus is saying true greatness is being like this child with an attitude of humility Okay, so that's the posture that has received Christ in the first place. But there's another side of the coin that true greatness is also not just being like that child, but receiving others like that child. That is a posture of humility. It's fellowship. It's standing arm in arm, side by side, together with other lowly, lowly people like you. The insignificant people like you. The weak, he receives them, has a relationship with them. So we ask, who are we on the inside now? This is about the inside. How are we be, who are we comfortable being in relationship with? In the flesh, I get it, the well-off, the educated, the influential, the well-put-together. 
But what about the addicted, the poor, the hurting, the struggling, the disabled, the marginalized, the insignificant? This is the heart of Luke. Luke is known to preach the outcast and Christ's heart for the outcast. I mean, you think about Matthew, the scum tax collector. He's called. You think about Mary, the pregnant virgin. How do you think that went over? Or the woman who cried up and poured her tears out on the feet of Jesus, probably a prostitute. How did that go over with the Pharisees? Or the leper looking for cleansing, being actually touched by the Christ. Or a woman married 12 years, or I'm sorry, a woman with 12 years of menstrual impurity that made her rejected and unclean. These are the people that Jesus stopped for. These are the people that Jesus talked to and looked at and touched. These are the people that he said, my son, my daughter, be clean. And if you're going to follow the crucified Messiah, the Son of Man who was delivered into the hands of men, we need to think more clearly about true greatness. And it's found in humble love for the insignificant. Oh, Lord, would you help us? And that's why I would say this. How much would this heart of humility through the Spirit unite us inside this church? And that's another reason I'm thankful for the bottom-up ministry that Barry and Joanne have started, the, the let-them-come ministry to serve and to love on the disabled among us because of this passage, because of the heart of Christ. But I would ask us, who else do we, do you, do I, do we need to welcome in the heart of Christ? What is true greatness in the eyes of of Jesus. So the first realm of pride in our life that Luke exposes is pride about ourselves, our pride of prominence, our status really among the insiders. Then the twelve now here today, the church. But that leads us to the second sphere, the second realm of pride that Luke unpacks for us. It's pride towards, not ourselves, pride towards others, a pride of exclusivity. A pride of exclusivity, our view of those outside our church. Put your seatbelt on. This is this verse. I know there's other verses. Hear me. I know there's other verses. This is this verse. I am preaching this verse. Here we go. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. So John, bless his heart, at least he asks questions. and He's not afraid to take a rebuke or get a correction. He's, I think, a little convicted, feels a little guilty about what's being said, because it says John answered and said, John is answering what Jesus just said. These passages are connected together. They're both about pride. One towards the insiders, other towards the outsiders. John is asking, hey, let me run a scenario by you, something that happened, and let me see what you think about it. 
Bless the Lord for refreshing John, who's willing to take correction. That's humility. Now, John basically says there's an individual that's a person not named, and he was doing really the same thing that the 12 disciples were doing in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. They were casting out demons in Jesus' name, but the disciples here were trying to prevent him. And the reason is that he's not a part of the 12 disciples. He's not a part of that entourage, that, that small group which included some women as well that were traveling together following Jesus and would soon head south through Samaria to go to Jerusalem. And so they're not a part of the group, and so they tried to prevent him because he's not in the group. The text does not say that this person, he's not named, was sinful. The text doesn't say that this person was, do, was doing this was a false teacher. The text says that he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. These two passages go together, and Jesus gives an answer to John's question. He's not frustrated. He likes to correct. Now a little more directly. The fire from heaven one next week, that's pretty direct, the rebuke they got. But this is a little more direct. Verse 50, but Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Jesus is promoting the same heart attitude of humility that, as one has said, destroys exclusivity and rivalry in ministry and promotes appreciation and often cooperation. And we could go to Numbers chapter 11, verse 24 through 30, and remember the spirit that is poured out and 70 prophesied, but there's two guys, Eldad and Medad, and the spirit rested upon them, but they weren't part of the 70. And the young man ran and told Moses all about it. They're prophesying. And Joshua's up in arms too and said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put spirit on, upon all of them. And now the greater Moses is speaking, it's the Christ who speaks. That interpersonal rivalry does not characterize the lowly, humble heart of a Christian. Now let me be clear what I'm not saying here. This would be a good time not to tune out. Listen carefully. I'm not talking about supporting the ecumenical movement and just getting behind every form of Christianity that's out there today. I'm not saying partnering and cooperating with churches and organizations that promote a false gospel. I'm not saying to cooperate with false teachers. There's all kinds of Bible passages about that. I'm not preaching those texts right now. But what does this passage say about us Church, church, listen, what does this passage say about our hearts and our attitudes towards outsiders? About our heart of humility in this community, in this world, for the sake of Christ. The other day, uh, I was in Arizona. Thor, you'd be happy to know that. I was in Arizona trying to get 
some sun for two or three days. It didn't work, but I was trying to get some sun for two or three days, and I had just been on a hike with my wife, and I was Googling a coffee shop, and I didn't want Starbucks or something boring. I wanted a local coffee shop, right? So I Googled this coffee shop, and it was Rock Point Coffee Shop. It sounded cool, so I decided to go to Rock Point Coffee Shop. So I go to Rock Point Coffee Shop. I get there, and Rock Point Coffee Shop is in a church. It's open Monday through Friday. You should have seen the church. I was like, Lord, I'm filled with jealousy right now. In a large, I mean, the large auditorium, the huge patio with different games for people and young people to gather around, to sit together and talk together. And then there's a high school right literally 200 yards away from this. I'm thinking about the connections with the high school and all of that for the sake of Christ. But my heart was kind of what? Oh, that I would preach from this pulpit. Hey, if you're not going to say it, I will. (laughs) And my heart went to then all kinds of different assumptions. Oh, they're seeker-sensitive. They probably don't preach at all here expositorily. It's probably a false gospel or at least a shallow gospel. But then I was studying this passage. (laughs) And I was convicted by this passage. I was. By this passage. And I began to pray, Lord, maybe we should have a little toss across. Lord, raise up a man of God who will occupy this pulpit with these and open up the Word of God and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community. Use these resources for your kingdom, Lord. Maybe they're not five point historic. Calvinist. Maybe their eschatology is different. Maybe they have a different view of spiritual gifts or a different church government. But Lord, make them the hand, to, to hold forth the true Christ, the true gospel. I was convicted that I didn't have a heart of humility to pray for this church, for success, for the gospel of Jesus Christ through this church. To bring the word of God to bear on this ministry and to pray for them. And so we can be filled with, I mean, I like our church. I'm not going to recommend, I re, you know, if you come to me and say, what church? I'm going to tell you, come here. But look, we're not the only church. There's a pride of exclusivity here. That Jesus is ratting out of the heart of the leaders of the early church. We don't have the corner of truth. We are not rivals with other true churches, even though they may take a bit of a different view than we do. Now, I'm going to get nasty. You ready? I'm thinking about the revivals, in that revival in Asbury University, Asbury University. Do I have questions about that revival? Yes. Is there some healthy skepticism? I hope so. Is it true that revival, if it's true, will bring a focus on Jesus Christ and the gospel and true repentance? And ultimately, if it's a true revival, will it, it will stand the test of time. It will produce the fruits of the Spirit. And ultimately, by God's grace, even if there's some things that are being messed up, ultimately it should be connected to the growth of the local body of Jesus Christ under called leaders. Yes and amen to all of that. These are all the true historical 
markers of revival. But here is the question of our passage. How's our attitude? What's our attitude like? Oh, Lord, I pray that you would work. I pray that there would be a real work of the Spirit here that you would raise up and show people their sin and their need for Jesus, that He is the God-man, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, open up eyes. May true Christians be poured in and be involved and direct this work to the Scriptures and to the Gospel. Lord, revive our universities. Revive our nation. Save our young people. May they stop looking for greatness in their jobs and their homes in the suburbs, but would come to the end of themselves and look to you. Revive our nation, O Lord. Save our people, O Lord. Well, I was convicted that I should have the heart of Christ and pray, not the pride of exclusivism that just assumes that it's only among sovereign grace, doctrinally deep, expository preaching ministries that the work of Christ is accomplished in this world. Lord, forgive us. It's the pride of exclusivism. There's a danger in our circles of having a big head and a small heart and even tinier hands that are unwilling to serve outside in the community beyond the frozen chosen. We need to remember what the Word of God says. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. We need humility inside and humility outside of this church. It will work itself out in love. One expositor says, Wells, these verses are not teaching us a soupy, sentimental ecumenicalism, but trying to prevent a jealous narrowness that thinks that we have a corner on truth. Don't hinder the work of God, even if it looks different than GCBC. This verse is not prescribing all the ins and outs of discernment. We need discernment. This is getting at our heart. This is getting at the attitude of pride. This is the attitude of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians when he rotted in jail and other rival preachers that were preaching from selfish ambition were happy that Paul was in jail because now they were lifted up and they didn't have any competition anymore. What is Paul's attitude towards them? He wasn't concerned for himself or for his own ministry or for his own churches to get big, but he desired Christ Jesus to be magnified, for sinners to be saved, the church to expand. So he says about these men who are preaching from selfish ambition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, What then if people are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, we rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Don't hear me say this is some sort of ecumenical stamping of a false gospel. How did Paul do in Galatians when, with a false gospel? He said some nasty things. When you try to Jesus plus, read the book of Galatians. But, church... Where do we need to change? Where are we exclusive and narrow-minded? How can we engage this community with the very love of Christ? How can we be friendly to seekers without becoming seeker-friendly? 
How do we not need to become culturally relevant, but become aware of our community and culture as well as and welcome Christ to them and them to Christ in a way that smiles more and assumes less? Oh, Lord, teach us and give us humility. What a privilege it is in light of a passage like this to have a church downtown historic Lakeville. So before Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he's exposing the pride of his disciples, the pride of prominence among insiders within their little group, and the pride of exclusivity with outsiders. And he's teaching us that true greatness, both inside and out, is found in humility. For if we are to understand the gospel, pride will be put down in our midst for Jesus changes the way we see ourselves and he changes the way we see others as the expositor Davis said well quotes the fellowship of Jesus has no need for hot shots end quote a proud Christian is an oxymoron. For the path of following Jesus is humility before glory, the cross before the crown. May our heart be the same as Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, who penned these words over 300 years ago. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Let us pray and then come to the Lord's table.